0: Good morning, church. Please do join me in Acts chapter 12 as we continue right where we left off last week. Our aim this morning is to do the entirety of chapter 12 up until verse uh, 24. Let me read to you uh, the word of the Lord. Acts 12. Verse 1, about that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him. Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought that he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and, then, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed, and he went to another place. Now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. This is God's word. In the entire scheme of the Scriptures, there are very few sins that are shown to be a serious problem in the eyes of God as much as the sin of pride. Pride of course is never alone when it comes. Pride gathers together a group of attitudes that is shown throughout the Scripture as being hated very much by the Lord. In the family of pride, we have conceit, uh, which is a view of oneself that is inflated. In the family of pride, we also have fear of man, when the opinion of God is decreased for the sake of the opinion of people. In the same group of sins, we also have self-importance, which sees its own needs and its own wants above those of God and others. We also have, in the same grouping, uh, we also have arrogance, which is confidence gone rogue. Arrogance is too much trust in oneself and one's own abilities. All of these sins come together under the family of pride. Now, if you argued that it was pride that was the first sin as Eve saw, as Eve did her own analysis of the tree and the fruit of the tree, instead of trusting in God, you would be right. If you were to argue that pride is the enemy of many Christian virtues, including love and faith, you would be right. The Lord Jesus said so. Why is it that the Pharisees and scribes didn't believe in Him? because, he says in John 5, they were busy trying to get praise from one another. If you argue that there is no greater enemy to your own spiritual progress than the acts of pride, self-importance, and the hard-headedness that goes along with it, you would be right. If there is a war that needs to be waged by Christians, it is the war against pride and all of her friends. In the text in front of us, Luke switches his attention from the happenings in Antioch and focuses on the acts of a man who is drunk with the destructive poison of pride. Chapter 12 of Acts can be called the Acts of Herod Agrippa. In this chapter, he is the main character brought to us by Luke to show us the hardship that the church faced while she remained in Jerusalem. While the actions of Herod here appear, then, appear no different in many respects than the actions of many kings throughout history, in this text we see heaven's opinion of him. And this is heaven's opinion of him. He is as mad as King Nebuchadnezzar was when he ate grass. He's full of himself. I want to show you three things regarding pride in this text as we go through it. There Certain things that come out of this text. And I want to show you three of them as we go through it. Number one, pride uses people. Number two, pride is no match for God. And number three, pride is ultimately doomed. Pride uses people. Pride is no match for God. And pride is ultimately doomed. So let's go first to our first heading, pride uses people. We, we pick up the story here. Remember where we left it off in chapter 11. Where we left it off in chapter 11 was the church was sending some money to the elders in, Ju- in Judea, in Jerusalem, through the hands of Barnabas and Saul. And that's the last thing we saw at the end of chapter 11. And it's almost like you can jump from the end of chapter 11 to verse 25 of chapter 12 and the story continues. Because you see how verse 25... Uh, how verse twenty? What verse twenty-five says? Verse twenty-five continues with what Barnabas and Paul were doing, and then it continues from there. They finished their service and they went home. And then in chapter thirteen, we pick up again in the book in Antioch. So it's almost as though Luke is inserting this here to tell us something, but his mind, his focus really is on the advance of the church through the work that is happening at Antioch. Now this is what he says, at that time, so around the same time as these things are happening in Antioch, the church is growing, uh, uh, Barnabas and Saul are preaching up a storm in Antioch, and the Lord is saving people. Uh, This is the same time where in, in Jerusalem, the church that remained, and around Judea, the church that was supposed to be out preaching the gospel, sharing the gospel everywhere, like Barnabas and Saul... But they chose to remain in Jerusalem, and this is what happens to them when they remain in Jerusalem. At that time, Herod, the king, laid hands on some of those from the church to harm them. And so he executed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. The first thing we need to note here is who this Herod is. Now, you might not notice this when you're just reading in the English, but it can get confusing in the New Testament because there are actually three King Herods throughout the Gospel and Acts. So you're just hearing it's King Herod, King Herod, but there's actually three King Herods in the the book of, in the New Testament. The first Herod in the New Testament is King Herod the Great, who ruled during the time of our Lord's birth. He was the Herod who wanted to kill the Lord Jesus when the, when the the wise men came. The second Herod is Herod Antipas, who was alive during the Lord's ministry and around the time, of course, of John the Baptist's ministry. And he is the one who had John the Baptist beheaded when John the Baptist confronted him. And the third Herod is this Herod in front of us. This is now many years after those events. And this is now the third Herod, who is Herod Agrippa I. He is the nephew of Herod Antipas and the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod was installed as king over the territories where the first two Herods were, but he was given more territories, including where Pontius Pilate was governor. So at this time, there's no governor from Rome over Judea. At the time, at the time of Jesus, you remember, over, over Judea, it was Pontius Pilate. But now it's actually Herod. Uh, Agrippa, who's over Judea. He's been given those powers by the emperor Caligula. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that this rule, this control over Judea really depended on the Jews maintaining him as king. And so throughout his rule, he attempted to do whatever he could to please the Jews. And so here we find him laying violent hands on some of those from the church. We know that the church in Judea had been scattered through the persecution that arose through Stephen's death, and that was a number of years ago now, while it has been a number of years since that happened, it does seem to appear that the violence against the church by the Jews is in fashion again, and the person who's at the head of that persecution is Herod Agrippa. He's he's the one leading now this new wave of persecution against the church. And the phrase there in verse 1 is a strong one. He laid violent hands on some of the church. His intention was clear. It was to harm them. And almost to show how serious this man was to harm God's people, the first thing we're told he does is that he kills the apostle James. Now, this is big news. This is huge news. This is headline stuff. While Stephen was the first martyr in the church, James is the first apostle to be killed. And he is not just any apostle. He is a leader, one of the three disciples closest to Jesus. Other than John and Peter, there is no more prominent an apostle in the church at Jerusalem. He is killed, probably beheaded. That's the meaning generally in Roman use of that phrase. Killed with the sword means a beheading. And you look at that in verse 3. When he sees that the Jews are pleased by this killing of the apostle, he then pursues the big fish, Peter. Of course, Peter has been really the main character here in the advance of the church and the preaching of the gospel. He's the one who's spoken the most. And so Uh, uh, Agrippa says let's let's go for Peter now, let's grab him and he grabs him and he throws him in prison. But he can't kill him immediately because it's about to be the Passover and if it's the Passover the Jews would not accept a, a killing during that time. He has to wait until after. So now you and I might be here sitting and wondering why? Why would Herod pursue to snuff out the church like this? Why would Herod pursue the leaders of the church with violent hands? So far in Acts, we have only really seen one kind of persecution of the church. And that is persecution because of religious zeal. We will see more kinds of persecution. There's persecution later on because of money. When the apostles preach and then people start losing money. So then they persecute them. But the only persecution we've seen so far is that of religious zeal. The scribes and the Pharisees persecuted the church and Saul persecuted the church because they believed that the leaders of the church were teaching people away from Judaism, thus committing uh, heresies that require the death penalty. So is that why Herod is persecuting the church? Is Herod a faithful Jew? who really just loves Judaism and hates these Christians because they're leading people away from Judaism? No. No, he was not a very religious man at all. In fact, we know that he went to Rome and fraternized with Rome to, to, to make happy with, with the emperor Caligula so that he can maintain his kingship. So he ate with them. He, he, did, he did everything that Jews normally did not, do, did not do. So we know it's not because he is He is zealous, like Saul was, for the ways of the fathers. Okay, so then what is it? What would cause Herod to pursue, to kill leaders of the church? Is the church causing opera, perhaps? There's too much chaos. And the church maybe is causing there to be lots of crimes, which would threaten him and his rule um, over Judea. Again, there's nothing like that in the text. The church is not causing any kind of chaos. You remember, this was actually the reason why Pontius Pilate even laid hands on the Lord Jesus. Because he wanted to maintain order in the realm. And he did not want to kill Jesus himself. But he was led to because the Jews wanted him to. Is that the same case here? There's nothing like that in the text. doesn't seem like the church was causing a lot of chaos. Okay? So if it's not that, then what is it? Is the church perhaps threatening him in some way? Kind of like his grandfather. Do you remember what happened with his grandfather? There were three. The, the wise men came and they said there is a king who's born in Bethlehem. Show us where the king is born in Bethlehem, who's to be the king of the Jews. And then King Herod the Great says, show me where he is so I might worship him. But he really just wanted to kill him because he felt threatened by the kingship of this new king. Is that what's happening here? No. There's nothing like that in the text. The the, the church is not saying we're going to install Peter as the ruler of Judea or something like that. There's no threat to the kingship of Herod. So, why is it? Why persecute this group? Why lay violent hands on them? It's right there in the text. Because it pleases the Jews. That's it. That's the only answer we're given. Because it pleased the Jews. It makes the Jews happy with him. The Jews do not like the Christians because particularly now, now that we know that the Christians are fraternizing with Gentiles and eating with them and teaching others to fraternize with Gentiles and eat with them, certainly don't want anything to do with the Jews, with the Christians. And so because it makes the Jews happy, it, it works out for him. If the Jews are happy with him, then he can maintain and fortify his kingship. His kingship relies on two things. Friendly relations with Caligula, the Roman emperor, and the happiness and approval of the Jews. So for the purpose of maintaining his kingship, the church in Jerusalem is a means to an end. I hope you see the problems that we have here. A person who for their own ends is willing to spill human blood in order to sit on a chair, has something very wrong inside of them. This tells us something very scary about the human condition. It is possible to reach a place in your ambition or your pursuits that human beings made in the image of the eternal God are simply stepping stones a means to an end, to be used. In this case, they are to be killed. And if I kill them, it makes them happy and makes me more comfortable in my seat. Therefore, I'll continue killing them. And I'll pursue more and more and more of them. Now you, sitting here this morning, you might not get to a point of killing someone. But it is possible that some of your actions regarding certain people are motivated by your own self-importance. It's possible that the way that you treat certain people, the first thing, the thing that's on top of your mind, is not that these people are made in the image of God, and they deserve everything that should come to someone who is made in the image of God, but it is because of what you have prioritized, and your own self-importance, and your own comfort, and perhaps even your own happiness. It is possible that while you might not get to a point of killing someone, it is possible that you are guilty of a similar sin, of seeing human beings as pawns for your own ends. Now, when we think about this, we need to think about ends. What are the ends that we sometimes pursue? Well, what are the things that are people engaged in? People pursue business and pursue advancement in business. People pursue money. People desire sex. People desire to be approved of and loved. And all of those things are ends. And in certain cases, in certain ways, those ends in themselves are not wrong. But when people are now used as a means to those ends, people are now objects as a means to those ends, we have problems. We have serious issues. There is a self importance, a a, a, a conceit, a thinking of oneself that is so sinister that, that even though you might not say it, but it actually views other people as lower and to be used. For a joke, you easily make fun of people. I want to have a laugh with my friends, so let's make fun of this person. We do that a lot. Those kinds of things are evil and we need to detest them because the Lord detests them. Human beings are not made for our entertainment. People are not made for our use. If God fashions a person, if God fashions a man or a woman, He fashions that man and that woman for His glory and His glory alone. Not to be used by you. Not to be manipulated by you. Not to be thrown this way and that way by you because of what you want to achieve. In what ways can we perhaps think about and diagnose our own hearts as it relates to other people? And how, how can we perhaps diagnose that we are getting to a point where, where we are using people for our own ends? I was trying to think about how to illustrate this. And, and, and I came across this article written in 1993, which is titled, How to be Miserable. And I think this article just lays it out perfectly. Listen to this. This this author says this is how if you want to be miserable, this is what you ought to do. Listen listen to this author. He says think about yourself. Talk about yourself. Use I as often as possible. Mirror yourself continually in the opinion of others. Listen greedily to what other people say about you. Expect to be appreciated. Expect to be appreciated all the time. Be suspicious. Be jealous and envious. Be sensitive to offensive. Any kind of small offense. Be very sensitive to it as it comes to you. Never forgive a criticism. How dare they criticize you? Never forgive a criticism. Trust nobody but yourself. Insist on consideration and respect. Everybody must know your place. Who you are in the room. Insist on it. Demand agreement with your own views on everything. Do not allow people to have differing views than you. Sulk. If people are not grateful for you, for favors shown to them. When you do a favor to someone, they better show you appreciation. (coughs) Never forget a service you have rendered, but forget other people's services to you. Shirk your duties if you can. Don't spend yourself doing what you're supposed to be doing. Do as little as possible for others. This is how to be miserable. If, if you find yourself in there, if you find a description of yourself in there, now you know that you have a utilitarian thinking regarding people. People are there to serve you, to recognize you. At the core of it, an overindulgent, indulgent self-focus focus, means people are a means to make me happy. I want to be looked at. I want to be enjoyed. I want to be praised. I do not want to be criticized. And I want it all to center around me. But friends, the way of the cross is entirely opposite to this. The way of the cross is opposite to this. Jesus says it is more blessed to give than to receive. That's what's more blessed. It's what's more happy. That is what has the eyes of heaven of it. To be a giver, constantly giving, emotionally, all kinds of resources. Be the one who's constantly giving. That's the way of the cross. Paul says, we must consider the needs of others. But listen to this. Not just consider them, but we must think of them as being more important than our own. Think about that. In Philippians, he says this. Not just think about the fact that other people have needs. But consider within the context, particularly of the local body, that the needs and wants and desires of others and interests of others are more important than my own. As an internal thing, not coerced from outside, but internally, I must have that attitude. That what I want does not matter as much as what you want. And so I'm going to outdo you in showing you honor, but ensuring that your interests are taken care of. Do you see how this is opposite? Instead of wanting it to me, me, it's about others. Paul says in First Corinthians that we should rather lose than make use of others. Than be utilitarian with other people. We should rather lose. It's better to lose, better to suffer loss than to want to win so much that you're going to use another Christian. James says, when it it comes to each other, we ought to exercise all patience. Perhaps one of the reasons you are so impatient is because you have a very high view of your time. You have a very high view of your views. You have no time to be kind and, and patient with the weakness of others. Dear friends, this is the way of the Lord. We must I must encourage you this morning that there are two ways. There is the way of Herod to use people as a means to an end and then there is the way of Christ to use yourself to bless others. In one sense we could say this text has for us a, a way of one king, but we have been given the way of the other king. This king wants to sacrifice people and kill them so that he can sit on a throne. But our king sacrificed himself so that we do not get what we deserve. Do you see the opposite of this? Not only does he sacrifice himself. He sacrificed himself so that we don't get what we actually deserve. We actually deserve destruction. We actually deserve judgment. But he sacrificed himself so that we don't get that. He gets it on our behalf. There are two ways. The way of Herod and the way of Christ. The Lord tells you, follow the way of Christ. Well, that's one. Pride uses people. Number two, pride is no match for God. Pride is no match for God. Look at verse 5. Thus Peter was kept in prison, but prayer was fervently made to God by the church for him. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains And guards before the door were watching the prison. And of course, we read the entire story after this of how he escapes. The Lord sends an angel. Herod has every intention of killing Peter, but he can't do it over Passover. So he has to wait until Passover ends. And while Herod is busy doing his plans, For his own political advancement which requires the blood of Peter something else is happening in verse 5 and what is it the church is praying the church is praying and not just any kind of prayer there's a very strong word that describes this prayer they are praying earnestly sincerely they are are, in one sense they are begging the Lord they are pleading with him for the sake of Peter and the Lord in response to the church he miraculously, through his angel, frees Peter from Herod's grasp. But there is a side question we might ask here. Why did the Lord allow James to die and save Peter? We can only answer this question with what we have in front of us. And what we have in front of us is that God saved him in the answer to the church's prayers. The Lord did not see it fit to save James, for his own ends and his own purposes. For his plan and what he wants to do. But he saw fit to free Peter in response to his church's prayers. The reason that it is emphasized to us is because this is an answer to prayer. It's not just something that's happening out of the Lord's own plan. It is part of the Lord's plan. But the means that the Lord uses here is the prayers of his saints. So let me just take a sidewalk here and say this to us, the Lord takes seriously the prayers of His saints, and His saints must take seriously then the prayers of the saints. If the Lord takes seriously our prayers, and none of our prayers fly into nothingness, but they go into the courtroom of God, how precious then are our prayers. How often must we want to pray with each other? To encourage one another to pray, and certainly to, make, to, to prioritize times when we are praying together. Because look, when the church prays, God moves in heaven. It's very important to think about that. Just like preaching, corporate prayer is a means through which God achieves His ends. God uses corporate prayer of the church. There is something powerful in your own prayer when you pray in your room, but it cannot be compared to the prayer that the church makes together with one voice. And so we must take seriously when we gather to prayer. We know that what we're doing is we're talking to our Lord who gives us his ear. But not only that, but we must expect that the Lord will do something. There's something rather comical here. Did you see that in the story? Rhoda comes to the door, hears it's Peter, goes to tell everyone it's Peter, and nobody believes her. Nobody believes her. No, 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 you're you're, you're out of your mind. You're mad. But you guys were just praying that the Lord would free him. No, no, you're out of your mind. It's his angel. Must must be some kind of, uh, uh, maybe he's a spirit now. He's dead. But, I mean, James died. We're here praying earnestly, but obviously he's going to die as well. Do you see this? This is incongruent. There's a difference between praying and wishing. Right? There's a difference between praying and wishing. What is prayer? What is wishing? Wishing is just throwing things into the air. Praying is speaking to the one who can make things happen. Praying is knowing that if I come to you, you have said your resources, your power is to do me good. So I'm going to trust that what I ask you, if it is in line with what you have said, I should know that, I should expect that you're going to do something. To some degree, in some way. Don't be so fatalistic. And also, you Reformed Baptists, please, do not use the sovereignty of God as an excuse for your weak prayer lives. Don't. Trust the Lord. Are Are you more, do you think you're more Reformed and believe more in the sovereignty of God than Paul did? And yet, how often did Paul pray and beg the Lord and beseech Him so please, don't, don't use the sovereignty of the Lord. Well, the Lord is going to do what He wants. No, the Lord says pray. And pray, trusting Him to do it, especially if, it's according, if it is in accordance with His revealed will. There are things, of course, that, are not in it, that we do not know if this is within His will, His secret will. But if something is within accordance of, of His revealed will, then we ought to pray it constantly, knowing that He will do it. And even the things that we cannot see, the things that we do not know, we should pray in trusting. Knowing that we're not, just, we're not just hoping this thing is going to happen. But we have, we have brought it to the one who loves us and acts on our behalf. Take this note. Um, and there is a, a second thing here that would be worthy for us to note. I want you to think about this. The church in Jerusalem is, has grown large. Yeah? They're, they're a big group. They are no longer an insignificant group. They're a big group. They're, 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 they've grown large. And not only that, but they are largely Jews. They are Jews themselves. They're in Jerusalem. And they are well organized. They have a means of a way of working. They have, all, they have structures within themselves. They have leaders and sub-leaders. They're, they're well organized. Let me ask you this. Why don't they fight back? Here's a guy. For his own political ends is busy throwing them this way and that. Why don't they fight back? Why don't they fight back either politically or take up physical arms and fight back? They have enough men and women among them. They could cause some kind of serious problems. Or why don't they, they make a political grouping just like the Sadducees and the Pharisees were? Because the Sadducees and Pharisees were a religious grouping, but there were some kind of also a political group. So why don't they make themselves a, a you know, the Christian National Party within Judaism to try and advocate for their own rights? Why is it that the only thing that they do in the face of a political leader who is evil, tossing them this way and that, doing whatever he wants with them, why is it that the only thing that they do is that they pray? Why is it? I'll tell you why. It's not because they don't have swords. They do. Remember Peter and the guy in the garden? Oh, they have swords. They have swords. They could have just used them. The answer to this great conundrum is that the church knows the power of God, and they know that their main advocate is Jesus. We would do we would do well to learn from the saints. With God, we have an advocate. And our prayers are effectual. And we know that vengeance belongs to who? The Lord. Jesus told Pilate this. Do you remember what Jesus said? My kingdom is not of this world. Otherwise, my disciples would fight. Church, we must always remember that. My kingdom is not of this world. Otherwise, my disciples would not have allowed you to arrest me. But because my kingdom is from another place entirely they've allowed you to take me and flog me and treat me this way. It's the same thing for us. We must always remember, even when we feel like we're being tossed this way and that way by politicians or rulers in their own political games, we must always remember, vengeance is the Lord. We are not being inactive Christians when all we do is pray. We're not being some kind of Some kind of disconnected, no good for the earth Christians if all we do is pray. Praying is the most active, most powerful thing you can do in the face of any and all kinds of evil. But to our point here this morning, when God decides to act in answer to his church's prayer, Herod cannot do a thing. Peter escapes him. Peter escapes, he walks out, and there's nothing Herod can do. And even when Herod is is losing his mind later on, trying to arrest people and question them and send people, he's only just screaming and shouting. He is unable to do anything that God has decided to do. God has decided that Peter is going to walk out in response to the prayers of the church, and Peter walks out in response to the prayers of the church. Nothing that Herod can do can stop that. And herein, friends, lies the foolishness of pride. It is no match for God. Herod had his soldiers, but the church had direct access to God in prayer. And while Herod would appear to be the one who is stronger in this scenario, he's the one who controls all the levers of power. In reality, Herod was terribly outgunned because the church had access to God. We must all, friends, reckon with this. God opposes the proud. That's what the scripture says. God opposes the proud. When God acts against the proud, there is no one to help. If you are full of yourself and full of conceit and you are doing things, acting out of that conceit and self-importance, the scripture says God is going to be against you in what you are doing. Who are you going to cry out to? The pride of a prideful person is pathetic in the face of the power of the Lord. A sneeze from heaven lays you bare like nothing. A yawn from heaven disrupts entirely your plans. He does not have to break any kind of sweat. He doesn't have to lift a finger. He just thinks it and it's over for you. Why would you stand in opposition to God? Why would you pursue a prideful course? You can beat your chest all you want, but you are no more significant than an ant in the face of a boot. My friends, God opposes the proud. But here's the wonderful part of that, because whenever we're told that, both by Peter and by James, they always say this, but he gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud, but he helps along the way the humble. He opposes, he's against the, the proud and those who beat their chest. But those who come like that, like that tax collector, have mercy on me, a sinner. What am I but a sinner? Anyone who comes to the Lord like that will have the full power, the full weight of heaven behind him to help him on his way. That's why the scripture can say, Scripture can say nothing. We are more than conquerors in all of this. Because nothing is going to separate us from the love of God. Why? Because when God has made us the humble people. Now he is working completely and entirely for us. And nothing is going to mess up anything that we are trying to do. For the purpose of righteousness. So let me encourage you, friends. To leave the side of the proud. Leave the side of Herod. And come to Christ. In humility, and you will find that you will receive grace and help. Well, finally, as we come to a close, pride is is ultimately doomed. Verse 20 to 23. Now he was very angry with the Tyrians and the Sidonians, and so they came to him with one purpose. And after persuading Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace. Because their country was supported with food from the king's country. And so on an appointed day, Herod, after putting on royal clothing and sitting down on the judgment seat, began to deliver an oration to them. But the people began to call out loudly, The voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God kept on increasing and multiplying. Well, here's what we find now in verse 20. And in this particular passage. We have a king who is now exalted by people. And because he is exalted by people, the Lord, who ought to be exalted by people, kills him. I want you to notice what happened here. There is an interplay that Luke is doing. What has the entire passage been with regards to Herod this entire time? It has been Herod trying to do what? To please the Jews. Now, this is flipped on its head. The Tyrians and the Sidonians want to please him. And look at what this now, he, in one sense, he's getting what he wants. They now want to please him because he was angry with them for some reason that we're not told why. And then now they want to come together and they want to please him. And so they come with flattering words. And as soon as he speaks, they call him a god and not a man. He gets what he wants. He gets a a royal robe. He gets a chair. And he gets the adoration of the people in front of him. But that becomes the means by which he is killed. He dies after getting exactly what he wants from the Tyrians and the Sidonians. It is interesting here. That the thing that we often want and chase ends up being our own death. Did you see this? Friends, be very aware. Be very afraid of the praise that you are so desiring. The praise that you want. The adoration that you want. All the eyes looking on you, making you to be something special. Your name up in lights. Be very afraid because that might very well be the occasion of your death. It might very well be what destroys you. It might very well be the thing that you want. That you are desiring so much. The shininess of it. You want it so much. But when you have it, it might be that you would have crossed the line that from which there is no return. You see, friends... Psalm 73 teaches us a very important lesson. Psalm 73 teaches us not to envy the wicked who are exalted in life. Why? Because God, in Psalm 73, uses that exaltation as an occasion to destroy them. Some of you, because of God's love for you, He has held back what you have been asking Him for. Because He knows that if you get it, it will destroy you. Some of you, you are praying and you are seeking something. But the Lord is not giving it to you because He knows you cannot handle it. If He gives it to you, it will crush you. It will cause you to forget God. It will cause you to make nothing, out of, make nothing of Him. You are having it now and you are full and you forget God. The main purpose of existence is not to get the thing that you are chasing after. The main purpose of existence is to glorify God. To walk with Him, humbly with Him. Perhaps the reason that the Lord is keeping you under the oppression that you are under is so that you constantly are humbled and walk with Him. Perhaps the Lord knows that if He raises this oppression that is over you, this hardship that is over you, you will forget Him immediately and you will become conceited. You must remember that even the very great and humble Apostle Paul was given A severe trial in order to keep him from being conceited. Do you remember this? He was given a a thorn in the flesh. Something that he couldn't get rid of. And the Lord told him, I'm giving this to you. Because I'm giving you so much revelation. I've taken you to all these wonderful places. You You are getting so much from heaven. Your head is going to explode. I need to keep this pin here to keep you deflated. Be very aware and be very wary of the things that you want, that when you have them, could cause you to be inflated. Be very wary. Because here, he is inflated. He is called a God and not a man. And why is it that he is killed? We're told there. He dies because he does not give glory to God. So it's not, in one sense, it's not even the fact that the people said to him, Oh, the voice of a God and not a man. But if he had just said, as they said to him, This is the voice of a God and not a man. If he had just stood up and said and tore his clothes, like Saul and Barnabas. Well, that's in the future, but in the future in Acts. but Tearing his clothes and saying, No, I'm only a man. Give glory only to the Lord. That would have been the better course. But instead, what we understand is that they said to him, the voice of a God and not a man. And he said, yes. And he, he held the chair in his nice royal rose. And, you know, and, and as he continued speaking, the, the strength of his voice, you know, he added that twang. You know, that, that twang in his voice saying, yes, yes, you guys are recognizing reality here. And at that moment, the Lord destroys him. It says that immediately, the angel of the Lord kills him. This death, friends, the death of somebody who enjoys praise and does not give glory to God is the death that is awaiting everyone who does not bow the knee to Christ. The only way to escape this kind of death, whether on your normal birthbed as you are 80 years old or as a young person, the only way to escape this kind of cursed death A death that comes from the Lord that has no fixing, nothing to reverse it. It is a finality on this kind of death. The only way to escape it is to bow the knee to the true King. Is to acknowledge that you are nothing and that He is everything. To acknowledge that even what you have, you were given. Even the abilities that you have, the the smarts that you have, the, the looks that you have, Whatever it is that you have, you, it is not yours by, by design. You were given it by the one who's above everything. The only way to escape Herod's death, and hear me clearly, friends, you need to humble yourself before the maker of the earth. Jesus Christ is the only one who, who has the claims that when, pe- when he speaks, the people say, This is not the voice of a normal person. What did the disciples say? When He spoke, what happened to us? It was like we were burning. Remember what Peter said. Where are we going to go? Because you have the words of eternal life. When you speak, it is unlike anybody else. Only Jesus is like that. And unless you come to that point, you will die like this. The mercy of God is available for any and all who would repent from living like Herod. Any and all who are full of themselves, full of conceit, thinking that the world revolves around them. If you are in here and you feel that that is you, there is a moment, there is mercy available. Bow down to the King of Kings. Amen. Let's pray.